Today we have just over 50 joint venture agreements with Indigenous communities, which are economic in nature as well. It's not uh, just the ability to provide a service, building business capacity. As an example, throughout those partnerships, last year we would have had just over 220 million of economic benefit flow into mm. communities. Mm-hmm. So that, that is what we think is a go-forward way. We, well, we've been living that for many years, but we think it's a, a true way to do business. This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. Today's podcast is the third installment in a series of podcasts looking at the current challenges and future prospects of supplying electricity in Canada's north. Once again, this podcast was not recorded face-to-face, but using Zoom, and features my conversation with George Lidget, the Executive Vice President and General Manager Utilities for Canadian Utilities Limited, an ATCO company. In my conversation with George, we discuss the scope of ATCO's business in the North and internationally. We discuss engagement with Indigenous communities, the logistical challenges of getting supplies to remote communities. We talk electrification the greening of the northern grids, and climate change. Like many previous podcasts, we close the conversation with some book recommendations. Here is my conversation with George, recorded late August 2020. George, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much, Francis. Delighted to, to have you join us and, and continue this uh, this discussion or these series of discussions that we've been having about electricity in uh, the north. And in a couple of the uh, previous podcasts, folks uh, that were on the podcast talking about their businesses also said, well, you know, ATCO is part of the electricity picture in our service territory as well. So I thought maybe it'd be interesting to to start off with a little bit about ATCO and its electricity business, because I know you're, of course, involved in Canada, but you're internationally as well in the electricity space, aren't you? Yeah, yes, we are, Francis. And, you know, it's something that's evolved over time and, you know, it grows and then we make changes and move on. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to understand a little bit sort of where we started from a bit, because history begets the future sometimes, too. Absolutely, yeah. As a as an electric entity, of course, we started as Canadian Utilities in the province. Mm-hmm. Yep. It was acquired by ACO and rebranded. But back before deregulation, we were a fully integrated electrical business. Mm-hmm. So we generated, we transmitted, distributed, and sold electricity here in the province. But And through that, over time, you know, certain uh, looking for opportunities elsewhere. And during that prevailing period, we created generation in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. Ontario here in Canada, obviously Alberta, mm-hmm. a significant portfolio. And then branched out internationally into the United Kingdom, what was called our Barking Power Project there, and then into Australia, right? different sites across the country. Mm-hmm. Right. In the, I guess the right term is continent because they are a continent. And then as we hit deregulation here in the province and 
you, you segregated power gen and transmission distribution. Of course, sales went to a competitive marketplace. Right. And just as you know, a year and a half ago, we concluded uh, divesting of our thermal assets in Canada. Mm-hmm. And looking at it on a go-forward basis and sustainability reasons, that made a lot of sense for our corporation. Right. But we have branched out since then as well over the last few years. And that's into Mexico. It's a hydro project that we acquired in Mexico. And then a little bit of generation for some industrial parks, mm-hmm. sort of central part of Mexico. And then set up in, Aust- in Chile. Um, and we're looking at some renewable projects in Chile as we speak. Right. So really moving it to an international focus on some of the renewable platforms that uh, we view as part of our future. And certainly that renewable future takes us back to the north. And that's a key piece of what we see going forward in the north is no different than Canada, but all of the communities and and the peoples we work with in the north is really that movement as much as possible away from that diesel generation platform. Right. Uh, certainly some hyd- a lot of hydro that both uh, Yukon Energy and NTPC have today. Yeah. But there is still a lot of diesel generation in uh, isolated communities that all of us need together to work on to really move as much as we possibly can in our decarbonization efforts. So mm-hmm. you see, that's a good, op- good challenge for us. Yeah. So what is what is Atco's business in the north look like? Generator, distributor, um, what what parts of the business uh, is, is Atco involved in, uh, uh, yeah. in the territories? Yeah, we have to look at a little. In the Yukon, we do some generation, uh-huh. a lot of isolated. We're interconnected with Yukon Energy, of course. Right. And do some transmission and certainly distribution in the communities. Yeah. Dominantly. In the Northwest Territories, very similar in nature. Mm-hmm. Um interconnected with NTPC, uh, but also self-generation in isolated communities and predominantly a distributor as well. So. Right. And how, how long is, um, has ATCO and, and the predecessor companies been, been involved um, in the territories? Well, in Yukon for nearly 120 years. Wow. Okay. From the predecessor perspective, we acquired uh, our, our system and grew it since 1958. Mm-hmm. As, uh, Part of ACO. Right. And then for Northwest Territories, out of Haver, we were based out of High River for nearly 70 years. Mm-hmm. And then we acquired an organization in 1993. So call it nearly, I guess that's almost 40 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to serve Yellowknife in some of the smaller communities. Right. So we've, we've been there for a long period of time on the electrical side. And nearly as long as a lot of other capabilities that ATCO brings into the north. You know, I wanted to talk a little bit about that because ATCO's involved in, in other sectors as well in the north, right? I mean, I, I recall uh, uh, I, I recall when I started at CEA um, was when ATCO was getting involved in logistics in the north, correct? With one of one of your one of your companies. Yeah, actually, we've, between our our structures uh, business, of course, we we do yeah. provide a lot of uh, camp solutions to various locations in the north, predominantly in the mining sector, but certainly also in the military sector, which is where a lot of our logistics business is through our Aquafrontec company. Right. And that yeah. is definitely across the north. We we still operate and maintain the compressors, or sorry, the uh, generation at all the northwest tell sites. So 
okay. all the cell service, yep. of course, and phone system. That's underlined in a joint venture with a lot of the indigenous groups. Mm-hmm. Have uh, been doing that for decades now. Uh, of course, we had the North Warning system in a 50-50 joint venture with all of uh, the indigenous groups mm-hmm. across the north, right from the Northwest Territories all the way through down to Labrador. Right, and the North Warning system that 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 that's for national defense, right? That's correct. That's our our uh, joint system with the U.S. military. So the early warning system should anything come from. Predominantly Russia, but of course, in yeah. these days you see other nations venturing into Canada, Canadian uh, airspace. And we also, in another joint venture with uh, a group in northern Alaska, Arctic Slope Resource Corporation, I believe it is, mm-hmm. still maintain the North Warning system in Alaska as well. Oh, wow. So, certainly pan Arctic in view. Right, yeah. right. Hey, maybe talk a little bit about um, how how you came to your role uh, at ATCO. Um, it's, it's a question I've been asking for a little while, ever since uh, I had the first um, podcast with a regulator and asked him when you were young, <laughs> was your dream always to be a, an economic regulator? But how did how did you come to your role uh, at ATCO? I say by pure luck, Francis. Yeah. Yeah. When I I've been here thirty five years now, and if you go back in time, that meant we were in the middle of the National Energy Program. Right, yep. So graduating in as a young engineer in 85, there was not a lot of work for, for anybody in those <laughs> days. Uh, it was six months after graduation, I did have a little contract with the government here. And Northwest Utilities, which is a predecessor of ACO Gas and Pipelines, okay. um, put a posting in the newspaper, which obviously responded to it. I remember having a discussion with the HR group after getting hired. They had over 200 applications. They picked six resumes and hired two people. Mm-hmm. And just by luck, and how I view it, I got the opportunity to join. And, and uh, been here ever since through many of our companies. So right. Spent time in the structures company, oh, certainly the gas business. Mm-hmm. And then moved on to our... Uh, Military supporter ACO front tech business. Okay. And then into ACO structures, headed that up. And then in 2015, came back into the integrated uh, natural gas business. And then mm-hmm. in July of last year, took on the portfolio of the gas and electric utility side. Okay. And then so that, that, that encompasses gas and electric in, in Canada or elsewhere as well? No, oh, it's for Canada. We do hold... Uh, utility assets, predominantly gas in Australia with our power gen. Mm-hmm. Oh, what we try and do is as we set up in a different nation, you know, we'll start it with support from Canada, okay. but then ultimately grow it to scale so that it becomes its own operating entity right. managed out of that country. So that's right. sort of the model we try to deploy. You've got, you've got business in Alberta, you've got business elsewhere, but the North has got to be different, right? Well, from a, from a technical standpoint, from a, a social standpoint, because the importance to the communities that the company plays and, 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 uh, and environmental and others, what are, what are some of those things that are, that are kind of unique uh, to operating in the North and Northern communities? Well, I, I'd say certainly part of it, uh, Franz, is, is that logistically uh, becomes very, very challenging sometimes as you're in remote communities and staffing. Yeah. You're a firm believer 
in hiring as much uh, and training people locally to support mm -hmm. the operations. Right. I can say that is one of our fundamental ethos mm -hmm. in ACO is participation with communities and indigenous peoples. Right. And, and we do that throughout our operations and very significantly in the north. Mm -hmm. So the, the challenge is, is maintaining sort of people you need and the training and keeping people moving forward and also I guess in today's day and age the next real challenge for us is looking how we work with the communities to assist with that decarbonization effort right I think you know we we always hear about electrification as the, the silver bullet to everything mm -hmm. and absolutely makes a lot of sense um, but I think looking at just pure energy, right. what is the best solution, both from a environmental perspective, mm -hmm. as well as an affordability perspective. Right. You have to right. marry the two because in the North, we do have rates that are some of the highest in Canada. Mm -hmm. And we have to ensure that the energy mix decarbonizes and remains at a level that can first off bring industry to the North as it develops. Mm -hmm. but also sustain the people who are there. And right. Sometimes, and we've done some work in that, that area today, in partnership with communities, I can take the first example that's complete is in Fort Chip, which I understand, which is not part of the Northwest Territories, but it's pretty darn close. Really an isolated community that we've put in both solar mm -hmm. and to really offset the amount of diesel generation and which has been quite significant and it was purely the first step of it was purely economics mm -hmm. the community grew we had to add incremental diesel storage to make it through the winter season right and by adding renewables and battery technology so solar and batteries mm -hmm. we were able to bring the volume requirement down mm -hmm. and then also green up the supply of energy which right. was a win-win for everybody and we've started to move that and working with communities in the Yukon at the moment and then move into the Northwest Territories in helping them start moving that next step. And a lot of community-owned assets, which we'll hope help support and maintain as we go forward. Mm -hmm. help them. And it allows the community, and the Indigenous community especially, to participate in that. And that is absolutely crucial for us. Right. Across Canada, we have... Uh, today we have just over 50 uh, joint venture agreements with indigenous communities. Wow, 50. Yeah, which are economic in nature as well. It's not mm -hmm. uh, just the ability to provide a service, right. building business in capacity. And as an example, throughout those partnerships, uh, last year we would have had just over 220 million of economic benefit flowing mm. Mm -hmm. so that, that is what we think is a go-forward way. We, well, we've been living that for many years, but we think it's a, a true way to do business right. in our nation and especially in the North. These greening projects that you're involved in, um, you're, you're displacing diesel. Imagine that in addition to the, envir the significant environmental benefits of that. It, it probably makes things a lot easier from a logistical standpoint as well. Because how are you how are you getting diesel to these remote communities? How, what what kind of a challenge is that every year? Oh, it's significant. So a lot of uh, obviously trucking, ice yeah. roads, 
if I use a Fort Chip example, yeah, we had to build a, a nice road from the northern end of Highway 63, right, which is the end of the oil sands, basically, into Fort Chip. So you can you can only ship when uh, when you've got an ice road. So it's only in the in the dead of winter that you can you're bringing the supply in. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And if you don't get it quite right, you're flying it in, which becomes very costly, as you know. Absolutely. So that that's why it's so important that uh, if you have a way to offset some uh-huh. of that requirement, it, it inherently brings cost structure down. Right. The end use consumer. Yeah. And greens at the same time. As I said, there's no real silver bullet. It's going to take multiple technologies to uh, get as much uh, off diesel as we possibly can. And that's going to be more electrification, obviously, uh-huh. and using heat pumps for, for heat load. Right. Biofuels. You know, there's been a lot of work done on biofuels across Canada, mm-hmm. and we certainly see the benefits of that now. So there's a lot of mixture of, of different tech. However, it's working together that's going to allow that to occur. Right. So if that, that one organization says that they can do it all. I'd, <laughs> I'd like to meet them. <laughs> right. Right. So that when you know, and, and we've talked before about about what the, the future would look like in the north. So it, it sounds like that future is is going to be one with a a wide range of different solutions. I, I, I working truly, together. Yeah, I truly believe so, Francis. Electrification, if it is just purely diesel generation, isn't the answer. Mm-hmm. You know, there is uh, in, in, across the north there is large potential for hydro, but it's got to be done responsibly. Yeah. It has to be done with the communities in the area, mm-hmm. uh, right? Otherwise, it just will not work. And it's yeah. got to it's got to provide for economic benefit, not not just. Uh, a royalty of some nature has got to include benefits to the local community and jobs that allows them to grow and prosper as well. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why we believe in the model of including communities and right. indigenous people's participation economically yeah. in projects. Yeah. And I think yeah. we see more and more of that happening across our nation. Mm-hmm. It's very good to see. One of the, it occurs to me, you know, when you, you mentioned um, one of the ways that, you get supplies into these communities is uh, with ice roads. Um, what are you seeing today and, and what are you kind of anticipating in the future, uh, the potential impacts of, of climate change on your operations? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there, there would be many, but I mean, the first thing that occurs to me is, is that season might be shorter uh, for, for being able to get supplies to communities. Um, we're seeing permafrost uh, reductions. We're seeing lots of changes. What is what is that looking like today, and what is it looking like into the future? It is already happening to us. Yeah. I'll give you a couple of examples. In 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 the Fort Chippewa example, uh, we had a very late uh, start to winter in that part, and we had a very shortened season. And even as the ice road was built up, it was limited in carrying capacity. You know, one truck carrying uh-huh. certain volume, we ended up with two trucks because you couldn't run the super trains of diesel. Right. So we ended up with more trips to get the equivalent volume. And it was only, you know, in the, probably a third of the year was on limited capacity and a shortened season. 
Mm -hmm. and, and the mining companies see that today in the Northwest Territories. Right. Shortened season to move product in. Yeah. So as you think about this further, if you have shorter seasons and you can decrease the amount of fuel that you need to move in because of the move to alternatives, mm -hmm. you can see where that you could actually meet your logistical requirements. Otherwise, as I said before, that, that means you are flying product in. Yeah. And it becomes a cost prohibitive. You know, yeah. I was going to mention too, and, and you know, in the North, we have unique challenges outside of logistics. Mm -hmm. As you know, it gets really cold. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if you are totally reliant upon one source of energy, say like if you could electrify everything tomorrow, mm -hmm and you had an outage, every residence and uh, office structure and business needs a backup capability. Right. And we did experience that a little bit in, in Nuvik. We do operate uh, part of the gas, we're a part owner in the gas system in Nuvik. Mm -hmm. And over time, the supply has, has uh, decreased a bit, so we bring in propane. Okay. Yeah. Propane air as a substitute, and that all has to be trucked in. And luckily, there's the Dempster Highway to bring it up. Mm -hmm. Except there's still a river crossing, and for a period of time, you well, for a period you bring it across on the ferry, and there is a period it's shut down until the ice is thick enough to run run the trucks across. Gotcha. Yeah. And the window in which that outage or the ability to truck across the river is expanding more and more, mm. the supply of propane has got to go up mm -hmm. uh, to meet that window. So we are seeing that more and more, that the ability to move product overland is is shrinking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Get there in a timely way. But if you electrify everything, we'll go back to that, you need backup, and that's what we did experience with a, a concern as one well was starting to water off. Mm -hmm is people still had an alternate capability. Yeah, yeah, so had, you had some redundancy, yeah. Yeah, so then you think about as a full electrification model, mm. uh, people have to carry two appliances within each building, backup as well as primary source. Okay, yeah. So the cost structure then becomes quite high. Those right. are things we have to think through as well, and hence why that moved to a renewable platform Mm -hmm. It's used some, in essence, backup because you have batteries and you have other capabilities sitting there. So as you think this through, it's going to be multiple technologies. The advent of heat pumps is another way to, to meet some heat load requirement. Not all, right. but some. Right. Uh, the biofuels I'll mentioned already, which is really mm -hmm. starting to, to get some good movement. We've done some work in southern Canada. Where we're taking woodland waste. Okay. And creating uh, a biofuel off of that. And it was pretty successful. Now it's got to scale up, though. That was a real trial project. <laughs> but I think as we move forward, uh, you do see that electrification will occur. I'm not sure about the penetration of electric vehicles. Right. When it's really cold, they don't carry a charge for very long. So. Right. So, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned heat pumps. Is it uh, ground source heat pumps or is it what's... Uh... What's being deployed in the north? Well, in theory, that's what they are. But if you have even a permafrost versus a 40 yeah. million side, you still have some, some abilities, right? It's a different style completely. Gotcha. 
So what what uh, what else uh, is part of that electrification picture uh, uh, in the north? I, I, I always go back to affordability again because we do mm-hmm. have some of the higher rates in the country. Mm-hmm. And as you electrify, you have to then beef up your distribution systems. Right. And, you know, we did some analysis just for Alberta as an example. I haven't done the work in the north yet in terms of total cost, but Mm -hmm. our quick look at Alberta, if you electrified all heat load and and hot water, it'd be approximately 60 billion, north of $60 billion of wire improvements required to sustain that. Yeah, that yeah. excludes the cost of new generation. Right. That's right. the top of that. So it, you have, and when you look at the cost structure of that, that is just prohibitive. Hence and that's looking, and that's probably what that's, what, what roughly a doubling of demand. And then you, you need to, to, to put in infrastructure to be able to accommodate that. It's about a tripling of, of tripling. Okay. Tripling of cost. Yeah. 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 Where you are today, your rate base. Yeah. So what, what are the alternatives? We have deployed batteries, which obviously is, is good for remote, but uh, putting batteries in systems today versus rewiring or adding an incremental circuit mm-hmm. uh, has worked quite well. And I think you could deploy that in the north. So you meet your peak requirements right? a little bit better than, than adding another circuit on long runs, which really is part of the north. There is a lot where, where it isn't isolated generation, you still have long runs community to community mm-hmm. and that's an alternative that exists as well hey does does that go have a view on small modular reactors because there, there, there are proponents uh, of uh, smrs suggesting that that might be part of a, a future a future energy mix in the north yeah i think small now i'll speak personally uh-huh. <laughs> i believe that small modular reactors do form part of the mix go forward right if you can take and, and uh, put in parallel, you know, four units, mm-hmm. which then delays the need of a large hydro project, and the cost structures are more than likely less than large-scale hydro over its lifetime, mm-hmm. it could have great benefit. We just have to solve the problem of disposal, right? And I think there's been a lot of work being done on that, which is is very good to see. But it, I think you've heard too that you know, many provinces have signed on mm-hmm. small modular yep. reactors. Yep. North North has not yet. I mean, it's you, you have to really think through uh, the impact of disposal. I think right. Once that gets there, then I think you would see that it becomes a very important piece of future decarbonization. Mm-hmm. You'd mentioned earlier um, that uh, ATCO had sold off its uh, thermal generation in Canada. Was that uh, part of a, a sustainability push at ATCO? Yeah, at the end of the day, it created a great view of our sustainability, yes. So what is the, what is the, sustain, the, the sort of sustainability future of ATCO look like? What is, what is maybe, I don't know, what is, what is um, the ATCO of 2050 look like from a sustainability <laughs> perspective? Stay tuned. <laughs> you know, like many companies have come out and stated we will be carbon neutral or carbon negative by 2050. Yeah. And go on to say, but we don't know how we're going to get there. Right. right. Uh, I think it's very important. Uh, you know, we've made our commitments in the, to, to meet reduction targets. Mm-hmm. 
But to come out, and I'm a firm believer that if you're going to come out and make a statement, you should certainly have a reasonable plan, albeit it's never perfect, to attain your goal. So I know we've done a lot of work what was called utility of the future. Uh-huh. So what the future could look like out to 2050. Right. What the scenarios could be in different climactic conditions. Mm-hmm. Of course, what availability you have for uh, renewable energy today, for example, in Eastern Canada, significant uh, amounts of hydro in Quebec, a lot of hydro in Manitoba to the point of significant surplus. Where you look at Alberta, and well, BC's got a lot of hydro, I should mm-hmm. say. Yep, sure. Ontario's got nuclear, but in other provinces, we're rich in other resources. So how do you decarbonize that? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. So it's jurisdictional, but it's also climactic in nature. Right. As to yeah. how you respond to that. So one day we can we can have a good discussion all of that work because it it also went to affordability. Yeah. The total yeah. cost, depending upon where you are today, and to attain sort of a zero emissions level, mm-hmm. what would that cost to consumer? Mm-hmm. And in some areas, it's not a cheap alternative. <laughs> yeah. Which, um, which is the North, again. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, is, it is the primary consideration in the North, but, um, but certainly a consideration in, in any jurisdiction. Um, yeah. Because um, you, your company serves customers as well uh, directly in Alberta. Yeah, and if you look at what we, uh, those places that are very rich in solar irradiation, Chile, mm-hmm. uh-huh. Mexico, Australia, it's a, it's a pathway that would look different than Alberta. Yeah. Or Eastern yeah. Canada, or even Europe to that matter. So it will take a mix, as I've said a few times today, of, of uh, sources of energy to meet our targets go forward. Right. Hey, George, one of the things that I ask everybody uh, that, uh, that joins the podcast is um, if there's a book that either you're reading or you've recently read that you would recommend to the listener. Yeah. I appreciate you giving me the heads up on that one because <laughs> <laughs> I do like to read. You know, it, it, the one that I probably still stands out for me the most, but I'll mention a couple others, is a book called Paris 1919. Paris, 1919. By Margaret Macmillan. And it, uh-huh. what it is, is a very well-written book on all of the peace talks post-World War One. Okay. And how it unfolded. And it's a lot of intrigue, but very, it, it is uh, non-fiction. And when you read through that, you can see how, as the world was divvied up right. by the Allied, the winning forces on the Allied side, how it led to World War Two. Mm-hmm. And as is important, still some of the geopolitical strife we have across the world today. Yeah, you know, how, when you look at some of the colonial powers and the nations that, or the countries that they held under colonial structure, mm-hmm. were then taken over by Allied forces. Uh, part of World War II, and boundaries in Europe were reset. Boundaries in the Middle East were reset. Yeah, and part of what happened to Japan in that process, you then can put your mind around how it's led to many, many issues since that period of time. Hmm. If you're interested, I'll send you a co- I keep copies in my office and I give them to some of our young executives. And, uh, and the reason I do that is Mr. Southern 
uh, gave me my first copy of that book. Oh, wow. Okay. And he was very, very uh, uh, read a lot in terms of world history. Right. And certainly on the military side, very well-read man. Yeah. That book just is one that still sticks with me today. Right. And then for the listener, Mr. Southern was the the founder of of ATCO. Yeah. Yeah. So the other ones that I thought I just mentioned, there's a, a, the writer Michael Lewis writes, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with some of his books, but the big short, he wrote that book. Yep. The movie did not do that justice, by the way. And, you know, Moneyball, which yep. is the Oakland Athletics uh, story. Mm-hmm. And the last one I just finished reading, his last book was uh, called The Fifth Risk. Oh. Is really the transition of power from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. And okay. It, it, I, I found it quite quite interesting because it doesn't just paint the picture of transition, but some, mm-hmm. some of the agencies have done historically uh, within the uh, U.S. government. So right. I, I found it quite a good read. Hey, George, I want to thank you very much for, for uh, an interesting conversation. Thanks for, for joining the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, Francis. And if there's something that uh, I have not addressed, by all means, let me know, and you can do an addendum someday. <laughs> okay, thanks. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor and invite you to tune in for future discussions and podcasts. As always, we invite you to continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.